Some years ago, I had the privilege of attending my first ever Gospel Coalition conference. The Gospel Coalition, if you're not familiar with it, is a collection of churches and leaders, a coalition, who are committed to the centrality of the gospel in ministry. And when I went many years ago, I wasn't really familiar with the work of the organization itself. I just knew that at this conference, there were going to be a lot of guys who I liked to hear preach who were going to be preaching. And the theme that year of what they were going to be talking about at the conference was, they testify about me. And I didn't really know 100% what they meant by that, how they were going to to use those words of Jesus to, to funnel and fuel the conversation at this conference. I just knew that they were referencing Christ's own words in John 5 and Luke 24. But honestly, I wasn't really concerned with the content of their preaching as much as I was with who was preaching. I wanted to hear Tim Keller and John Piper and Don Carson, men I really respected in the faith. But as I sat there under their faithful preaching over the course of several days in Chicago, something clicked for me for the first time. These men and the men who were preaching with them introduced me to a way of thinking about and understanding the Bible that I had never fully understood before that moment. They were showing me how Christ's words in Luke 24 and John 5 were actually being accomplished throughout the entire story of Scripture. Look with me at Luke 24 for a second. Verses 13 to 27. We're going to focus on verses 25 to 27 in our time together. This is a post-resurrection account. There are two disciples traveling on a road to Emmaus, and they're talking about all that's just happened with Jesus, his his conviction, his crucifixion. And as they're talking, Jesus appears to them and asks them what they are talking about. And they begin to recount to Christ, they don't recognize him, all that's unfolded. And in their recounting of all that's happened over the course of the last few days, there's disappointment in their voice. There's despair in their voice. Look at verse 21. They're speaking to him and they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Notice how their hope is past tense. We had hoped We had hoped something was going to happen. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped he would be the one to save us and fulfill all the promises of God. But his death has robbed us of that hope. And there's really no chance of him coming back from the dead because three days have passed and his spirit has gone. But look at how Jesus responds to them. These disciples of Jesus in verses 25 to 27. He said to them, O foolish ones. Seems kind of harsh, huh? Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to this. Was it not necessary 
that the Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now I want you to consider for a moment the words of Jesus to these men on the road to Emmaus. Jesus calls them foolish. He calls them slow of heart to believe. And here's why. Because everything that happened to Christ, everything that they just witnessed, they should have been prepared for because God had been preparing the people of God for this moment from the beginning. And yet they were missing it. Even the ones who loved Jesus, even the ones who loved God, even the ones who had been reading the prophets, reading the revelation of God to his people, as they see the events unfolding in Christ, they missed the promise of God being fulfilled. Listen, God's whole sovereign and redemptive interaction with the people of Israel was preparing them for this moment and they missed it. So what does Jesus do? He does something so merciful, so kind, so good. He doesn't leave them in their ignorance. Rather, beginning with Moses and marching through all the prophetic works, Jesus shows these men, and consequently us today, how all the scriptures have been preparing for the work of Christ. How Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. He shows them how the scriptures, and specifically the Old Testament, testify about him. And what's the result? Look at verse 32. After Jesus leaves, these disciples say to each other on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures in a way that they had never been opened before? These men were not ignorant of the scriptures. They had read, they had studied what God had spoken to his people, but there was something about the way that Jesus was teaching this Old Testament. There's something about the way that Jesus was unfolding what God had spoken before. They had never understood before. And as they heard Christ recount to them how God had been working from the beginning of time even to now to prepare them for the redemptive work he would do through Jesus, their hearts burned. Their hearts burned with affection for a God who loved them and who displayed his love for them in Christ. For some reason, I had never really considered before I sat at this conference, not fully, how the Old Testament scriptures were meant to prepare me for Jesus. And my heart, honestly, had never really burned while I read them. And maybe some of you in this room can relate. Maybe some of you, you commit to reading through the Bible in a year, and by February or March, when you've read through the law and you've read through some of the prophets, you give up because you just can't make sense of it. And how what has been happening in the Old Testament really matters and applies to you today. Here was my conception of the Old Testament previous to this kind of revelation moment in my life. I thought that the stories in the Old Testament were cool stories, right? They were fun. They were great for use in kids' ministry. They were great for use in vacation Bible school, right? Because we all like good stories. And there's, 
There's some great stories in the Old Testament. I thought they were good moral lessons. They would teach us how to behave and what is right and what is wrong and, and challenge us to choose what is right. I thought that they were lessons to us as God's people about how we should behave as people who have his name attached to us. But even after growing up in the church and having gone to seminary, in fact, I did not fully grasp how their ultimate value was in how they prepared me for the work of Christ. There's certainly other benefits. It does reveal to us what's right and what's wrong. It does reveal to us the holy standard of God. But the ultimate benefit of the entirety of Scripture is how it all points us to Jesus and God's saving work through him. Before that time, I could not reconcile how what was happening in the Old Testament correlated with the gospel that I understood from the New Testament. I knew that I was saved by grace through faith. I knew that it was not my work that saved me or counted me righteous before a holy and righteous God, but it was entirely the work of God through Christ. But I also couldn't understand how so much of the Old Testament was concerned with behavior. It seemed weighty and difficult, all these standards that God had put forward before his people, disconnected somehow from what I was reading in the New Testament. And so I had to, to make some decisions sitting before what I was now hearing. Should I ignore much of the Old Testament? Should I teach it differently? Should I consider it as being of lesser value than the New Testament? Or was there something essential to understanding the value of the Old Testament that I was missing? And of course, in the end, the last question hit the nail on the head. I simply had not considered what I was now hearing at this conference, and I left different for the first time as I read the Old Testament. In a different way, my heart burnt for what God was unveiling to me as I considered how it fully prepared me and every story for the work of Christ. That is our desire for this new series for you. As we approach the next several weeks together, this is what we as elders and a pastoral staff want to happen for you as we sit under the teaching of God's word. We want you to see how the whole of scripture, all the scriptures are preparing you, preparing us to understand God's redemptive work for us in Christ. I need you to hear me say this. We're going to say it over and over and over again, and I hope at some point it's going to stick. The whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And we want you to see, to get a taste of how this is true over the next few weeks. We want you to read it so that when you read it, even the Old Testament, you see God's redemptive plan unfolding and it stirs your heart for Christ. Here's what we're going to do. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at some key figures in the Old Testament, some key people, and we're going to consider their stories. We're, we're going to talk about their stories and, and how God used them in that moment to teach his people in that moment something about himself. But we're also not going to stop there. We're going to, we're going to follow the trajectory of Scripture, and we're going to try to understand how those individual stories are actually part of a larger story. And how each story is meant to prepare us for a greater story, the story of Jesus. In fact, if you don't look to Christ, you will leave unsatisfied from them. 
As I was thinking through how to help us prepare ourselves or gain some understanding about the work that we're going to encounter, I began thinking about my interaction with Dr. Pepper of late. Many of you know, it's going to get there, I promise. Many of you know that I'm a big fan of these 23 flavors of goodness. And uh, this is a true Texas treasure, is gold. But also, many of you may know that over the past few months, my wife and I have been trying to be more diligent in our diet. And we have uh, adopted some, some eating standards, some drinking standards that are help, hopefully helping us be healthier people. And part of that pursuit is reducing the amount of sugar that we intake. And so uh, the diet that we're on allows for diet drinks. And so I thought at first, at least I'll be able to have some soda, right? Because I'm, I'm a big fan of soda. So I know it's not, you know, Dr. Pepper, but I'll, I'll get to have something. And so I tried Diet Dr. Pepper because they do say that it tastes more like regular Dr. Pepper. And if you mean more than water, they're right. <laughs> but what gets me is that it's Dr. Pepper in name only. Like, it doesn't in any way taste like Dr. Pepper. Now, I can see, like when I drink it, I can see that it's trying to emulate Dr. Pepper. Like there are some things about the bouquet of Diet Dr. Pepper that's meant to try to help us remember what Dr. Pepper was like before we got crazy and decided to start drinking diet drinks. I understand that Dr. Pepper has a bottom line and that they knew that in our health craze, we were going to start drinking less Dr. Pepper, that we weren't going to drink it at 10, 2, and 4 like everybody used to drink it, that there had to be some sort of change. And so they did their best to try to make something that simulated real Dr. Pepper but never could quite live up to the real Dr. Pepper taste. And so every time, that I drink Diet Dr. Pepper, all I can think about is how much better regular Dr. Pepper is. <laughs> because every time I drink it, even though there are hints of Dr. Pepper in it, all I can taste are the ways that it's different. All right, now walk with me a little bit. The Old Testament functions in this way. The Old Testament introduces us to people who are incredible people, who are men and women of faith who in many ways are examples to us about how we are to honor the Lord. But every time we begin to become enamored with one of them, we are also forced to reconcile their faults. Because as great as these men were, as great as Adam and Moses and David were, they were not perfect. And inasmuch as they did incredible things in faith for the glory of God, they also had devastating failures that had dramatic impact upon the people of God. And so with every taste of these men, every encounter with them, there's a piece that says, oh, that's good. But at the same time, there's a, a lack. There's something missing. And it begins to stir in our hearts a desire for something that tastes better. For something that doesn't just do it partially, but does it completely. That, that doesn't lead to both positive and negative, but leads to positive fully. Every taste of diet Dr. Pepper is pointing us back to Dr. Pepper. 
Every taste of these Old Testament figures is meant to prepare us for something greater, the story of Christ. That's what we're going to be about over the next few weeks, to show us how these these figures in the Old Testament and their stories were meant to prepare us for something better. And here's what I hope to accomplish. Here's what we hope to accomplish over the next few weeks together. First of all, we want you to grow in your love for all of God's word. It's my hope, it's my prayer. Every single person that teaches in this series, we want you to love the word of God and we want you to love all of it. Because here's what we believe. All of scripture is useful. All of it. Is just the New Testament beneficial? Is the New Testament better than the Old Testament? No. All of it is necessary to understand the work of Christ. I want you to cherish the Old Testament. I want you to read it as if it matters. And I want you to read it in a way that makes your heart come alive. But beyond that, we also want you to understand more fully the work of Christ. Every time we gather together as a people, here's our ultimate commitment. We want to exalt Jesus. We want to lift him high. We want to consider the work, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And we want our hearts to love God more for how he has loved us in Jesus. And every story that we encounter in the Old Testament over the next few weeks reveals different and new dimensions of the work that God has done for us in Jesus. And I want us to think about it, right? In one way, the gospel is very simple so that a child can understand it. But in other ways, its depths are limitless as we consider the many ways that God has blessed us and redeemed us in Jesus. And we want all of that finally to lead you to worship, right? As you consider the gift of God's revelation to us, the way that he has has unfolded for us, what he has done for us throughout history, especially in Jesus, as we consider the many things that he has accomplished for us in Christ, our hearts should burn. And when our hearts burn in this way, our, our tongues are going to start wagging because we've got to communicate. We've got to let out the love that we have for God. You ready? I think it's going to be a great series, and I'm really excited about what the Lord's going to do in our church as a result of it. So let's begin in the beginning today. Let's, let's start small and have an example about the kinds of things that we're going to do over the next few weeks. And so we're going to begin in the beginning with a guy named Adam, right? Many of you may be familiar with Adam and his work. You may remember that he was the first man created. You may remember that he was created in the image of God and he was given dominion and authority over the earth. You also may remember that in Genesis 3, he really blew it, (laughs) Like, really blew it. Like, in a way that all of us are affected by, blew it. Maybe blew it bigger than anybody else in history. Maybe even more than UT did last night. (laughs) Soon? But there's something more significant. I just had to get one. I won't say any more about that moving forward. But there's more to his story. There's more to the story of Adam for us. And Paul outlines that for us in Romans chapter 5. If you want to turn there with me, beginning in verse 12, Paul uses the story of Adam and the events surrounding Adam 
the work of Adam to help us understand the work of Christ. In this passage, he's continuing his discussion of how God has saved us through Jesus. He's outlining the the dimensions of the redemptive work of God in Christ and how we have an opportunity now because of the work of Jesus to find salvation, to be at peace with God. And he uses the person of Adam to help make his point about the work of Christ. Adam, according to Paul, serves as a type of Christ. Adam is the diet Dr. Pepper to Jesus' Dr. Pepper, right? So he's okay if that's all you got, but there's something better that you need to think about and consider. And so let's consider what Paul says about Adam and Jesus, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. The law just revealed it. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned, even so, before the law, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like or not as great as the transgression of Adam, who was a type, listen to that word there, a type of the one who was to come. So there's something about the work of Adam that was supposed to picture as a type what was going to happen later, foreshadow what was going to happen later in Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for the work of Christ is not like the work of Adam. For if many died through Adam's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift that's a result of the work of Christ following many trespasses has brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin has increased, now because of Jesus, grace has abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's a lot of stuff that is in this passage and we don't have time today to go through all of it. What I want to focus on today is this comparison. Paul offers a comparison between Adam and and Jesus. And as he compares them, he offers a greater sense to us, the church in Rome and now us today, of what God has done for us in Jesus. Here's what he's saying. The created son, Adam, has set the stage for the work of the eternal son, Jesus. And it's better. It's better. So let's compare the two works. Let's consider what Paul is saying about the work of Adam and then how it prepares us to understand the work of Christ, the work of Adam. What did Adam do? What was he supposed to do? And then what did he actually do? Well, Adam was a representative of all humanity. He actually had two roles in his representation work. He was supposed to represent man to God, but also God to creation. 
He was a father of a household, and all humanity is a part of that household. He was supposed to be a representative that led us and the entirety of creation into greater faithfulness to this God who created us. He was supposed to set an example. And think of the advantages he had. Think of the the intimacy that he had with God. He walked and talked with God. He had intimacy that we could only imagine having with God. And God entrusted him with so much. He gave him authority and dominion over the earth. And then he saw the kindness of God. As God saw him lonely in that garden and said, it is not good that Adam should be alone. And he saw the miracle of God creating Eve just for him. And so he was supposed to, having received all those blessings, to lead creation to worship him, to worship God because of his goodness and kindness. But he was also supposed to represent God to creation. God created him differently, didn't he? He gave man his image. Mankind is an image bearer. Adam was an image bearer. He was given the the task of stewarding creation, having authority over it, picturing for the world a God who cares for it, a God who is gracious and good and generous. He was supposed to lead all of creation to honor and glorify God as he reminded all of creation of God's goodness. So Adam was a representative, uniquely situated in creation, representing both God to man and or God to creation and man to God. But rather than leading us into faithfulness, Adam led us and was led into rebellion. He failed at his task to both represent God to creation and represent man to God. He denied God's ultimate authority. He denied God's ultimate goodness. He failed to represent man faithfully to God, rejecting the commands of God and taking the presence of God for granted. He rejected the authority entrusted to him and he rejected the authority that God had over him. And friends, the effects were devastating. Look at verses 12 to 14 again. Sin came into the world through this one man, not created by Adam. It existed before, but it entered into creation through this one man and death through sin. So that death has now spread to all men because now all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Through the rebellion of Adam, sin entered into the world. And now all of creation, all of mankind is considered guilty before a holy and righteous God. Guilty, at least in part because of his sin, but also because of our sin. Because we continue in the example of our father, our earthly father, Adam. We continue to rebel against the authority of God. Now our nature has been changed. Instead of being inclined to be obedient to God in our natural state, we are inclined to be disobedient to God, to reject him, to turn away from him. And as a result, death reigns. Death reigns over all creation and condemnation awaits for us, and it all began with Adam. Because of his failure, and because of our continued failure after him, we now stand condemned. 
And I hope you begin to sense something. As we hear about what Adam was supposed to do, as we, as we hear about his work and the failure of his work, and we see and we consider again that the wake of devastation that has followed, something begin us begins to stir. And we begin to, to ask the question, is there someone who could represent us better? Is there someone who could actually do this work? Is there someone who could faithfully represent God to creation and faithfully represent us once again to God? Is there someone who could undo all the effects of Adam and accomplish exactly what God had asked him to accomplish before? And as we sit here, And those questions begin to well up inside us. The Bible answers resoundingly, yes. Yes, there is. Yes, there's someone. There's someone who can fulfill that longing. There's someone who can satisfy that hope. And his name is Jesus. He's the one that you are longing for. He's the one who can usher in a new humanity. one that begins to do exactly what God created us to do. Friends, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is the better representative who will lead us back into the presence of God. He is the one who will faithfully demonstrate for us how to live before our creator. He is the one who will undo the effects of sin. He is the one promised in Psalm 80, 15, the son who God has made strong for himself. So let's consider, now that we've talked about the work of Adam, let's consider the work of Christ and how the work of Adam has prepared us now to understand more completely the work of Christ. The work of Adam helps us understand our situation. Helps us understand why, or talking about the work of Adam, helps us understand why we are in the state that we are in, why we are separated from God, how that failure has led to where we are today. But in understanding why we are where we are now, we understand now more completely the work of Christ who rescues us from this state. The work of Christ. Firstly, Christ faithfully represents humanity in perfect obedience. Adam represented humanity in perfect disobedience, (laughs) right? But Christ has come to represent humanity in perfect obedience. Look at verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass, not like the disobedience. For if many died through that one man's trespass or disobedience, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And it's because he did not disobey. He did not trespass the way that Adam trespassed. Whereas Adam disobeyed the command of God, Jesus obeyed all of them perfectly. And his obedience to the work of God is instrumental to us understanding what God has done for us in Jesus because Jesus is declared righteous before a holy and righteous God. And because of his righteousness, there is now a doorway open to us to receive the grace of God even in our unrighteousness. You see, Jesus is the true picture of faithful humanity, living in obedience to the creator God. And in that way, he becomes a worthy and perfect representative of all humanity before God. And while many have died through Adam, 
and his failure to represent mankind well, the Bible says countless others will be saved in Christ if they receive the gift that is available to him. And that leads us to point two. Not only did Christ faithfully represent humanity in perfect obedience, he has also freed us from our guilt. Christ has freed us from our guilt. Look at verse 16. The free gift is not like the, tr- the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment, the declaration of guilt following one trespass has brought consequences to that guilt, condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses has now brought justification. Now, what does justification mean? It means that you are declared not guilty. That in a, a court of righteousness, you should have been declared guilty because guess what? You were unrighteous. You were unrighteous because of your own sin, but you were also unrighteous. You were guilty because of the work of Adam as our representative. We are completely and utterly guilty, yet somehow the work of Christ has undone that declaration of guilt before a holy and righteous God. Somehow, the work of Christ has made a way for you to be free from the condemnation that you rightly deserved. Isn't that incredible? And here's how it happened. It didn't just go unnoticed. God just didn't forget it. He didn't just turn a blind eye to our unrighteousness. No, we are now able to be declared not guilty because Jesus himself was declared guilty. Isn't that good? He took the condemnation on himself so that we could be free from condemnation. It didn't get much better than that, friends. There's no better representative than Jesus. Adam led us into guilt. Jesus took our guilt on himself to lead us into freedom. We have moved because of the work of Christ from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. From slaves of unrighteousness to slaves of righteousness because we have been declared free by the work of Christ. Praise the Lord. And finally, Christ has restored our fellowship with God. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam's disobedience, death reigned through that one man. What are you talking about death? Does he mean physical death or spiritual death? Yes. Yes, both. Death reigned, right? People died even before the law, after the work of Adam, but there was a greater death that's talked about in Genesis 3, a death of relationship, a separation from the source of life, a gap that now exists between us and God. The intimacy, the fellowship, the life that we had with God now removed. And so now death, physical, spiritual death reigns over us, but something about the work of God in Christ has given us life. Whereas the guilt of Adam brought death to man, the faithfulness of Jesus has brought us life, both eternal and abundant, to those who will receive the gift. Instead of death, we now have life. Instead of separation, we now have fellowship. Instead of the desert, we get the garden. And instead of judgment, we get 
grace. Sin has only increased since Adam. And through the work of the law, our sin has become apparent to us. It's increased the trespass because we know better, we know the standard, and we rebel against it anyway. Our guilt is before us. Our death, we can smell it, and it will last for all of eternity if not for the work of Christ. Christ has undone the effects of the fall. He has undone the failure of Adam. He is better, my friends. He is better. And the story of Adam is meant to help us understand how much better he is. And that's true of the entire Old Testament, guys. That's what's so incredible, is that in every story that we encounter in the Old Testament, there's a way for us to understand more completely what God has done for us in Christ. Just like with Adam, so with Moses, so with David, so with Elijah, so with Jonah, so with Boaz, all the ones that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Jesus is better. And it's a good thing for us to remember and to consider whether or not our lives, our story, is about what this story is about. So let me ask you this morning. Do you love the Word of God? Does your, does your heart burn when you read the Scripture because you understand how God is revealing Himself, how He's preparing you to understand more completely the love that He has shown you in Christ? If not, it's my prayer, our prayer, that would change over the next coming weeks. That you would get a more complete understanding of the entirety of Scripture and that your heart would stir. You would, you would love, you couldn't wait to read the Scripture in the morning. You couldn't wait to sit under faithful teaching because you want to know more of what God has done for you in Jesus. Hopefully today you've gotten a taste of that. Your love for the Bible has grown. Hopefully today you're even understanding more of the work of God for you in Christ. Uh, some more dimensions or uh, some more depth to the work of Jesus has grown for you. Maybe some of you in this room didn't know you were guilty. Or if you did, you didn't know why. Maybe some of you in this room didn't know that you were separated from a holy and righteous God and that your future would be one of separation from a holy and righteous God. And you didn't know there was a gift that had been given to you in Jesus that could remedy that if you accept it. Maybe some of you in this room need to give your life to Christ today. In just a minute, we'll have an opportunity for that. Let me ask you this. Whose example are you following today? Are you following the example of your earthly father walking in greater disobedience? Or are you, in the power of the Spirit that is now yours in Christ, following the pattern of the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, seeking to be obedient because of how God has loved you? I'm looking forward to the next few weeks together, friends, as we consider more of how God has loved us in Jesus, and hopefully our hearts will be stirred to love him more and to worship him because he is worthy.
Amen. Our first response today is going to be partaking of the Lord's Supper. I can't think of a better thing to do today in response to the work of Christ than remembering through this action the work of Christ on our behalf. As we prepare, let me set some parameters for you. We invite all believers who are in the room today to join us in partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you've never received the gift of Jesus Christ, then we would ask you to abstain today, to not partake of this because you haven't tasted and seen that God is good yet. You haven't yet accepted the work of Christ that we remember today. And so we would ask you to watch and consider the testimony of everyone in this room who is saying that God did something for us in Christ that has transformed our life. And afterward, we would love to speak with you and talk with you about that. For the believers in the room, you are welcome to join us if you are in good standing before the Lord. Meaning that when you partake of this, you wouldn't be offering false testimony because you've been living in a way that is different than what we are declaring in this room today. That throughout the week, you have not been living in a way that says that that God has saved me and transformed me in Christ. This is a, a declaration of that together, that we are different as a people because of the work of Jesus. So maybe you need to repent right now. Or maybe you need to abstain and not partake of it because you know that the Lord would not be honored by you partaking of it today. Regardless of where you are, would you just bow your heads for a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to do some work in our hearts before we honor the Lord in this way? Father, we're grateful for the reminder today of the work of Jesus. How we've just been able to touch briefly, experience a brief moment of reminder of the way that you have loved us in Jesus. And as we remember that work now through this act of remembrance, God, I pray that we would do that well, that we would honor you as we partake today, that we would truly worship as we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us so that we who were guilty could be declared not guilty. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to be a faithful son, a faithful representative of us on the cross so that we could be set free. We honor and worship you today through this act. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.